Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. This one is dedicated to the Oscar winning powerhouse that is Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. And joining me to discuss the movie are two of the finest promising young women. Oh God. I know. <laughs> Terry White. This is where you say hello, Terry. Terry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I am here and I'm paying attention, I promise. Still a lot of promise to fulfill. It's, it's fine. It's fine. You'll get there. And Helen O'Hara. Hello. Thank you for the young bit. That was appreciated. <laughs> well, you are. You're young. Aw. Okay. You know? Compared to Methuselah, maybe. But okay. Well, I didn't want to say. But first, <laughs> let's hear from the film's writer-director who this week picked up an Oscar, an actual Oscar for Best Original Screenplay to go along with her BAFTA. Uh, it's the one and only Emerald Fennell. Not Fennell, like the cooking ingredient. Fennell. Helen spoke to her a couple of months ago when the movie was set to come out in cinemas. It was then delayed. I don't know why. Is there a pandemic or something? I don't know. Nobody tells me nothing. And it was snapped up by Sky, which is the, uh, the only place you can see it in the UK on Sky and now TV. So this was before, Helen, remind me, this was before any of that, before any of the Oscar machinery started grinding into gear. She yeah. certainly had been nominated at that point. I don't think even no. the BAFTA nominations had come out. No, I think that was prior to all the nominations. I think I did this about, was it late January or early February? I don't think any of the nominations were out yet. Obviously, it was I this expected, year, wasn't it? It was this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're now almost in May. What did we talk about? I look forward to hearing, so that'll <laughs> so be fun. So do I. I haven't listened to it yet. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. She was great, but I don't remember what we said, so. But you Go talked me. about all the hot button stuff, didn't you? Hot you talked buttons. about all the twists, all, all the them. turns, the controversial ending... Men yeah. and women and the oh, whole thing. Men. Not you all got men. into it. Not, Not all men. Not all hot topics. <laughs> anyway, it is, of course, a spoiler special. So I'm hoping that this is a spoiler interview that gets into the film's twists and turns. It might be just 30 minutes of small talk. You never know. But if you haven't seen Promising Young Woman, and I can't imagine for a second that you're listening to a subscription-only podcast on a subscription-only movie if you haven't. But then again, <laughs> people are fucking weird. Then stop listening to this. See the movie. And then come back and listen to it. Okay, for those of you who are still here, here's Helen talking to Emerald Fennell. Enjoy. First of all, I loved this film. I saw it last year and just watched it again this morning, obviously, because 2020 happened in between. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, how long have you been working on it? How long has it been with you? Um, well, I guess, you know, I started thinking about it a long time ago, but I started pitching it in kind of mid 2017 um and yes I think it just it's it's one of those it's one of those things where for all of us that grew up you know it's particularly my age but I think probably much more widely than that everyone who was brought up kind of when using alcohol and getting people drunk and losing your virginity by any means necessary no matter what trickery was required and waking up and not knowing who was next to you and doing a walk of shame home, this was all just like comedy fodder. Yeah, it was just not really frowned upon or even interrogated that much. So it just felt like, it felt like the kind of thing that is always interesting to me, which is a really sort of frightening place, which is good people doing bad things. Normal people kind of, and the little cruelties they're happy to 
commit when nobody's watching or when society sort of tacitly allows it. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it was kind of that stuff, you know, and then, and then luckily what, what, ha- what happened was I, I kind of, that's the scene of Cassie on the bed being undressing, what are you doing, what are you doing drunkly, and then sitting up sober and saying, what are you doing? That was the first thing really that came to mind. And so mm. then I kind of knew what that was, you know, because yeah. it's difficult. Of course, there are things about this film that are very like political and timely and all of that. But in general, you're just you know, you're setting out to make a movie. It's just something that people are going to enjoy and watch and that's thrilling and romantic and sad and all those things. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it, it needed to be that idea which like grabbed me. Yeah. Made me want to see what Cassie was going to do rather than a sort of, you know, TED talk or a documentary or, you know, any of the other ways of talking about this stuff then. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, let me talk about that scene first of all, because it's, it almost plays like a horror from that moment, like with her, when her eyes sort of snap into focus and then she, and she's just looking almost directly at the camera and then sort of sitting up suddenly. It, it really, you do kind of almost play it like a horror. And when she was walking down the road afterwards, first time I saw it, I honestly thought that was blood on her legs. I thought we were watching a full on violent, you know, thriller of that sort, revenge thriller of that sort. So was that deliberate or am I just an idiot? It's entirely possible. I mean, no, absolutely. It was a deliberate. I think that's what's so wonderful about genre. And if you love genres, and I love the revenge thriller genre, what's so great is you can use all of those tropes to your advantage and you can subvert the audience expectations. And so obviously I think that, that this movie is a kind of, we know, I think, what the expectations are, mm. that she's going to sit up kind of Nosferatu style and wreak bloody vengeance. And and it's a sort of the kind of like visual joke that I find very pleasurable in a sort of nerdy way. But, you know, panning up her leg and seeing blood and then seeing it down her arm and then just seeing she's eating a hot dog. You know, it's kind of, I mean, some would say laying it on slightly thick with the phallic imagery. What? No. I'm not subtle. You know, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's all of that stuff. It's kind of fun and it's, you know, it's, it's all like, it's that lovely, uh, that lovely pleasurable thing of get, that I love when I watch something of, of thinking, oh, I know, I know where this is going. Oh, hang on. What, what did I just see and, you know, we find often, and what is so lovely about talking about the film, but also a bit difficult, is that everyone who watches it has a very specific idea, they have a very specific response, but also quite a, a quite differing ideas about what they saw. And that's, and it's sort of a bit, I think for me, it's like important to preserve that actually in a funny way, because obviously there's a certain amount of trickery involved in making a film like this, which is, you know, I hope immensely pleasurable as well as being surprising, but... Yeah, you don't want you don't want to be like no 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 guys this is what happened mm. because uh, you know like everything that this film discusses sometimes it's not easy to say exactly what's happened. Mm. Yeah, and it feels like it's if it gives you that little bit of ambiguity early on, and it feels like it's setting up something that is first of all like we haven't seen before, but also something really weird um in in the revenge you know genre because her revenge is kind of almost lecturing people 
Yeah, I think it was like going back to the very beginning. Um, I, I'm, I'm so interested in like the way that women express rage and the way that we can, you know, take revenge, hurt people, all of this kind of stuff. And, and we're so used to, in movies, we're very, very used to seeing violence, but there is a reason that women do not carry weapons, do not resort to violence. And, and the very simple reason is that when they do, they don't win. Mm. I think that is you know, a big part of this film too. It's like, you know, if, if, I have, if I start anything thinking, what would I do? Uh, if I wanted to go and, you know, teach people lessons, change their minds, frighten them, definitely would never, never even occur to me to get a weapon. Mm. And so it's sort of, it was, it was always about using the, the tools at your disposal as a woman. And those tools are, you know, the way you look, uh, the way you can appear vulnerable, the way you can appear innocuous and safe. But also I think, you know, I don't know, none of us want to be physically threatened, of course, but I think a, a darker fear that we all have is being revealed and mm. being told that we're not good, being irrevocably, because I think a lot of us have that terrible fear deep down that we're not good because we, we can't, nobody can be truly good. But so having that exposed is so frightening. And so it seemed to me that actually being kind of existentially um, threatened yeah. and maimed would be kind of both something that a, a woman might do, but also horrible, horrible. Yeah. And so uh, it's been really, it's been really interesting. So, so we're so inured to violence now, really. Um, it's so unsurprising in a funny way that it, it's just about, and I made the film that I, I made a short film, written directed a short film that was sort of the thing that meant I could make this film. And the short film was called Careful How You Go. And the premise of that was how could you ruin a stranger's life without touching them or threatening them or doing anything in any way that was bad or illegal hmm. because I think that's that's always going to be something I'm fascinated by. Well and it seems to tie in as well to a lot of modern concerns a lot of people are concerned about you know quote unquote cancel culture and this this threat that at any point the mob could come for you. Um, Cassie of course a kind of one woman mob in that sense um, but 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 that's been a, a real theme with the Me Too movement and with this whole moment that we've lived through, people keep worrying about, yes, but what about the men? Yes, but, you know, this is he said, she said, what are we, you know, what if we get it wrong? What if we're sort of accusing them unfairly? And there seems to be this massive concern for people's reputations. And of course, you kind of deal with this in the Dean Walker scene um, with Connie Britton, but that does feel like a really kind of uh, major theme, actually, for the, um, for the moment that we're in, in the world. Yes, I suppose there is a shame element to it, but I think really it's much more, it's much more like primal um, than that. And mm. it's probably the place where sort of all, I guess, religious, religion comes from, which is very overblown and pretentious thing to say. But I guess so much of the film, the structure of it and talking to everyone about making it and then the shooting of it was a, was a kind of a fable or, um, you know, Bible, one of the Bible stories that you are taught when you're at school mm. and they're usually quite simply a journey that somebody goes on 
and they teach people lessons. And, and really for Cassie, I think actually it is a revenge movie, but it's also, a, I think really more than that, it's a, it's a movie about somebody trying to forgive other people and mm-hmm. trying to forgive themselves. And so I think she's, she's less preoccupied with the shame and the film is than it is with um, acknowledgement and apologies. I think the thing, the thing that, that is always a stumbling block when it comes to this stuff is that people want it to be forgotten. They want it to be behind them. They want it to be acknowledged that it was bad, but it's behind them. But they don't want to acknowledge their part in it. And they mm-hmm. don't want to acknowledge that the whole culture is complicit. And they doubled down when they're asked about it. That's in, in Cassie's way, it's quite simple what she wants. She just wants one person to say, I'm so sorry. This is horrific. Mm. I'd never have done this. I never thought about it like this. Or I didn't know at the time and I'm so ashamed. Like, and a couple of times that does happen in this movie mm. and relief is huge. But I think that's it. There's a, there's a step missing in this conversation. And that step is saying, I... Uh, will never forgive myself. I'm so sorry. I never yeah. thought about you. Should have thought about you. You know, it's it's like, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but like, get over it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the it's the yeah. Sort of like you know, you just need to like sort of because of course because that's what happens. You know what what do you do? What do people do when they're when your partner says you didn't do the washing up? How many of us say, I'm so sorry, that was so thoughtless to me. What we say is, I did it last time. Hang on, well, I did the hoovering. But, oh, well, okay, that's very rich. Do you know what I mean? Just on a very basic human level, we hate being told off because we have to go about our lives believing that we're the protagonist and we're kind of in the right all the time, even if it's about the washing up. So it's this thing of like this person, you know, in Cassie, it's this person who comes into all these people's lives, all of these protagonists' lives, and she interrupts their journey she interrupts what they think about themselves and that I think is probably what's you know more culturally been happening as you say it's like this this movement these conversations that are ongoing they interrupt they're interrupting yeah the way things go and that's why they're discomforting I suppose Mm -hmm. yeah and nobody wants to do that that step you're talking about the acknowledgement the kind of almost atonement they just want to move on and forget about it okay that happened well let's let's move on now and uh, that's why it's such a huge i mean you know and again like we it was there was so much sort of avenging angel stuff about cassie and something we talked about a lot um but you know there is a necessary step at getting forgiveness and that's confession yeah you know so like that it's interesting that that's something we're not adept at still many, many, many millennia later. The Jordan scene with with Alfred Molina, that's one of those kind of moments, isn't it? That's someone who has suddenly realised in his, what he calls his psychotic break, oh no, I shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And I think that's that's what was so important about it was that actually Cassie's kind of looking in a mirror there. Um, Obviously what Jordan did is, is sort of in many ways... No, it's, it's unforgivable. It's repellent, distressing, but nobody could punish him more than he's punishing himself. Mm-hmm. You know, when Cassie finds him, he's relieved. He's relieved. He's waiting. He's been waiting. He's been desperate for punishment. In fact, he doesn't even, he wants the opposite. He doesn't want redemption, really. He, he wants to be punished. He wants her to hurt him. Um, and I think, again, that's a very natural reaction that we're finding. Like lots of people, then the self-loathing becomes so overwhelming. Um, but, you know, 
it's it was important to see and it was important to see how important to how cathartic it was for both of them. Mm. To, and and another thing for Cassie is it was so important that he remembered Nina's name. Yeah. Because for her, she's been kind of, yeah, she's just been carrying this torch down this lonely road by herself for ages to see somebody else as affected by it as she is. And he's much more, it's interesting with Jordan, you know, you go to his house and it's ashtrays and it's overflowing. It's, it's a man who's been sleeping on his couch and not moved from his couch. Um, Cassie's learnt to function much better, but she's every bit as broken and destroyed and distressed as he is. Was that kind of a, a mirror then to the, the Madison uh, scene where she also, because it feels like those are two kind of pivotal moments for Cassie in terms of her relationship to this kind of crusade that she's on. The Madison scene, again, it's somebody realising the extent of what they've done to someone else and yeah. realising how wrong they were, but perhaps has a slightly different effect. Well, absolutely. I think that Madison is, you know, it's interesting that so many people feel that she's a villain. Uh, actually, I feel very, very sorry for Madison. And I think she expresses in the film a lot of things that I think of women, you know, lots of women were honest, things that they've said themselves. You know, it, there's a reason that this permeated every bit of culture it, because it was people, yeah, it was normal. But, but the thing that Madison says, I think, when she comes back, that's so upsetting is, um, you know, things happened all the time. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that feels, has always felt to me like such a big part of this film and, you know, how I feel about it and how so many women and, and men as well, I know it's, it was things happened all the time. And so what she's sort of saying is like, we all had to swallow it. And, and Cassie wouldn't and Nina wouldn't. And that was incredibly distressing to the women who had. Not, I'm not saying for a second that they were right, but, that, but the thing is, is that, you know, the ways that women are complicit are very different and very complicated. And often it's, you know, it's a way of sort of yeah, saving yourself from yeah. that. And so I thought, and so the thing with Madison, I thought was very brave in her coming back was that not only had she thought about it, partly because of, you know, the sort of very sort of scary lesson that um, Cassie had, had um, taught her, but, but she, she, just, she just thought about it for longer than five minutes. And that's the thing. That's the thing about this stuff is that actually often you find, and I'm sure people have had these conversations with their parents, with partners, like around this movie, but also before and, you know, outside of it where actually when you talk sensibly to people, they just haven't thought about it for yeah. very long. And that's the awful truth is that, you know, certainly I'm, you know, regrettably, there's so much stuff when I was a young woman, there was so much treating of girls. You know, even, you know, the media, the way that women were photographed, the way that they were stalked, the way that they were discussed, their bodies were discussed, all of this stuff was just, it was so normal. The idea that, there would have been a video of a drunk girl, you know, seemingly kind of at a party, sort of, you know, doing the things that, you know, are, are described on the, on the video, hmm. that, that people would have passed it around and thought it was a joke at the time. It's just not at all, unfortunately, it's yeah. not at all strange. And so the fact that Madison comes back and does what she does is so brave, but also these are her friends. 
it's not like she's Cassie and she's an outsider. She's not an outlier. The people that she's, the, the video that she's giving to Cassie has all of her friends on it. Yeah. They're all still her best friends. She's just exploded her own life. And that's, I think, an act of real solidarity and bravery and, and is very deserving of redemption, even though she's understandably furious <laughs> and distressed by it. Yeah, I thought her, I thought her sort of closing line of "never talk to me again" was was spot on. Actually, absolutely spot on. Um, I mean, we've we've been talking about women. We obviously have to talk about men. Um, so, uh, but you you've you I think I thought you've really gone out of your way to cast really likable, you know, internet boyfriend type actors mm-hmm. as your as as the men here. All of them, you know, I've seen and absolutely adored in other things. I mean, all of the Bo Burnham scenes are basically played as a rom-com. It's a delightful little rom-com that just has a slightly unconventional, you know, surround. Um, but I also wanted to ask, as, as well as talking about them, I also wanted to ask about the casting of people like her parents, because Clancy Brown is a guy who generally plays large, terrifying men. And so to have him in contrast cast as this very nice, quiet guy, I thought was, was delightful. And he's so amazing as well. So moving as her father. He's just such an amazing man and a brilliant actor. And I think really it's, it was just about finding those people, firstly, that I admire very greatly and think brilliant, but finding people that you do like, you do want to be friends with, that you would want to sleep with, that you do think are funny and cool. Because, you know, that's, that is the problem. If this film was just full of, frightening sort of evil people with you know eye patches and capes and you know the twirling moustaches I think it's the thing that's so distressing is it's when it's your brother and when it's your friend when it's your boss that you really like who's always been really nice to you um, when it's the guy that everyone wants to go out with, like why would he need to? It's it's yeah. those that that's where it's sticky and uncomfortable. And and it was just about kind of using the, these brilliant actors, particularly the, you know the men, and saying like, for all of them, the conversations I had with all of them, you know, Adam Brody was a sort of good example of like, is that he's the lead of a rom com? You're like you're the lead in this rom com. You meet this girl, you save her from your skeezy friends, you end up in a car, she laughs at your joke, maybe something's happening, you go back to your messy apartment. Let's imagine the rest of the film as you fall into bed together, you both wake up with a hangover, you go get breakfast, you start talking, you walk along the river, and then this movie is going to be an hour and a half of you guys falling in love over the course of a weekend. That is how you have to see it. That's how you have to play it because that's what we're used to seeing and that's what he's grown up on and that's what he thinks is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, Jerry, the guy in this movie, he just hasn't noticed that he's not, she's not really spoken. He's just not really noticed that when he kisses her and he leans back and it was like electric for him that she didn't open her mouth. It's, it's, just, it's just the brilliance of just not noticing what not noticing will do. And so, yeah, it's just, and it was just amazing to see all of these people give these like unbelievably committed performances. And, you know, someone like Chris Mintz Platz, who's, you know, the ultimate kind of nerdy guy that we all really root for, getting to see him play that sort of coercive, like, hey, just, just one more, you know, just if you just, that thing. I think that is something that so many people are so familiar with, the sort of almost begging. They're yeah. like, you, you know, 
Um, and he was just so, I mean, he was so funny, like, and brilliant. No, it was heaven. It was just, it was, it was exactly what it, what I wanted it to feel like, which was just a horrible comedy about, <laughs> about you know, made up of things that we really like, but th- that are hiding a something mm. else. I mean, there were a couple of alarm bells. There were Fedora, uh, <laughs> a, a, tre- a treatise on David Foster Wallace, who I love, but also, you know, it, it's a bit of an alarm bell. Look, I don't mind David Foster Wallace. It's very funny because I think since I wrote the since I wrote the script, David Foster Wallace has sort of become this sort of shorthand for like douchey guys. So it's unfortunate, but like, you know what it is? It's not. I think the reason that the David Foster Wallace is such a good example is lots of women love him, mm. but. It, a bit like Bob Dylan or something, he tends to be one of those writers that men still want to explain. You know, I bet if you were a woman who wrote the biography of David Foster Wallace, you'd still have him explained yeah. to you. He's sort of, there's a kind of, he is, and it's a bit unfortunate for him as well, you know, or his legacy rather that, that that's kind of what it is. But yes, no, all of that stuff. The, the thing is about making, making that apartment just, you know, dream catchers that he's sort of collected, try and make himself seem sort of urbane and interesting and travelled and, you know, a dusty guitar in the corner that he's maybe could play like, I don't know, like a Rolling Stone on. Like, maybe. Yeah, it's just, it's those details. Like, you know, we've all, everyone knows what that is. And I'm not, also it doesn't, I don't mean to be cruel either. Like this is, it's, but it's just, it's just that, Somebody, somebody I know saw it and said, um, I feel like you've been watching. Oh, no. <laughs> but the thing is, is it's not that. It's, that. it's that you didn't notice that we were all watching. We're not, we have eyes and ears. <laughs> we, we all know what's happening. It's yeah. just for some reason there's, yeah, it's, it's anyway, it's, mm. that was very fun. But, but then in contrast, what I love about um, sort of Cassie's aesthetic and, and the film maybe as a whole's aesthetic is, you know, it absolutely doesn't shy away from girliness. It doesn't use that as a, you know, sometimes that's used as a, as a stand-in for unseriousness or, you know, frivolity or teenageness and, and youth in a way that is, you know, somehow negative. Um, and I think there's a, there's a real sense of reclaiming that a little bit here, which I liked. Thank you. Yeah, I think absolutely it's, um, there's still, and, and it's it's the same with comedy too. I think people are still a bit anxious about approaching serious or dark subjects kind of comedically. It's getting, I think it's getting better and you see it more and more, but in general, people still find it quite discomforting. They, they think there are only, there are appropriate ways of talking about things. There are appropriate mm. ways of like presenting things. And I'm completely with you. I just think it's, it's a nonsense that you can't, make something in yeah in in out of the stuff that is important to you and important yeah. to a lot of other people so there is that but also I think more specifically it's a it's a film about Cassie from her point of view so it it needed to feel like she does which is that she's not what she seems that nothing in this film is what it seems and that you would be wrong to make an assumption on it based on you know the colour of her nails or even the blood on her leg, you know, the yeah. her leg, the blood on her leg, like all of this stuff, it's kind of, it is supposed to be, I guess, a very pleasurable trap, um, like she is. 
Yeah. I mean, I haven't asked much about Cassie herself and Carrie Mulligan specifically. What an incredible performance. But, you know, what made her the right person for it? Well, from everything, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I do, that's the problem is this, the answer is everything. She's perfect. She's a genius. I've loved her ever since I think I saw her in Bleak House and the episode of Doctor Who. Oh yes, yeah, Sally Sparrow, amazing. Sally Sparrow, that's the thing. It's like she's just always been good, and everything she's done. I think people have this idea that she's, you know, maybe done a lot of period dramas and things, and I suppose she has. But you actually look at everything she's done, and you look at Drive and Shame and The Great Gatsby and an Education and Wildlife, and actually, she's. I think it's that she herself is so composed, and she doesn't play the kind of you know, she's, she's quite enigmatic, Carrie. In real life, she's literally the nicest, coziest, funniest, most wonderful person, but she's, she's very far away from the work she does. And so I think it's often easy. Like I would find her to be like, oh, she was so good in drive. And people go, oh God, she's, of course she's in drive. She's so good at disappearing into the character. And that's what I love so much about her in this is that I really didn't, I was desperate to not have a character that felt surface that felt um you know i think i think women uh, making things at the moment are really hobbled by the kind of words um badass and whip smart <laughs> you never find a 50 year old man described as whip smart <laughs> no it's funny that isn't it hmm. um and i, I realized what i was oh it's clever but sexy <laughs> <laughs> Argus and whips, but it's also sexy, <laughs> crucially. Um, but so, yeah, and it was just, try- it was so, it needed somebody who was just going to really be at the centre of this quite heightened thing, completely real. And yeah, the sort of, she's the backbone of everything in this film. Mm-hmm. She's, she's the real person dealing with the real horror of it all. Um, and Carrie, yeah, she just, she just, she's so gifted and she's so subtle and I, you know and that's the thing this film is is very heightened and you know I suppose in some ways kind of allegorical and and in lots of other ways not subtle I think again I don't think I don't think subtlety is necessarily crucial to things being good but it was absolutely crucial for Cassie's character and, yeah. and it was crucial that we kind of that contained how contained she has become yeah so is that was that one of the things that kind of fed into the ending because I know originally you were going to finish essentially with her death an even darker ending maybe than we have um and, and that she does have this kind of it doesn't feel like a pyrrhic victory but she has this strange victory at the end oh, definitely. I definitely do think it's a pyrrhic victory mm. I mean with you I didn't yeah you know that version was very quickly um, I, it, even even for me, it was sort of too. There's, you know, yeah, it didn't it didn't sort of sit quite right, but not because of not because of the sort of practical reasons, not because of the uh, like, you know, producer sort of producery reasons. It was more that you can't say that a woman has been this diligent and this clever and this canny for this long and then not thought that something might go wrong. Right. Yeah. In that case, there's there was just no way that that Cassie wouldn't have gone there with an, at least a plan B. Yeah, because she knows, you know, she knows. 
what yeah. it's like. And, and so much of that sequence is designed for all of us to feel what it feels like. You know, we've seen so many strippers in movies, but you never feel that sort of, you never feel that wave of testosterone when you open a door and the kind of sweat and you never see, you know, you never see the stuff that we, you know, we got the Phantom especially so we could kind of film it like a nature documentary because that's what it feels like to be on the other side of that. You know, people talk about the male gaze a lot, but it's much more than that. It's, you know, it's teeth and it's teeth and nails and, you know, erections straining against chinos and sweat. And, you know, it's that, it's like, gimme. It's a kind of, it's like being held back just by the thinnest veneer. And so it was important that we all kind of understood that and that, and that there's no way that she didn't, you know, the thing is about Cassie is she's been doing her, you know, before she goes on her sort of more personal journey, she's been going out and doing the thing that she does at night class for a long time. And just because we don't show the times that maybe are more frightening doesn't mean that, you know, I think any woman who's watched this film could assume that she knows the danger of what she yeah. does. And so it seemed preposterous that she wouldn't know the danger of going to see, go to that cabin. But yeah, yeah so that was kind of really why the ending, um, why I kind of, yeah, it has the prologue, epilogue. <laughs> epilogue, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it works really well. Well, listen, um, I've run out of time, but thank you so much for that. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. And best of luck with the much delayed release. My God. Oh my Lord, I know. Will it ever come out in England? I hope so. Oh yeah. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, so that was Emerald Fennell. Um, and now let's get into Promising Young Woman. We have a whole bunch of listener questions as well. I'm going to be throwing at you guys. Um, I'm going to be saying very little. I'm here as an ally. I'm here as a friend. But this is mainly a platform for Helen, who has seen this movie three times, and Terry, who has seen this movie a terrifying number of times, nine times. Is that right, Terry? Uh, well, I've got a confession to make. I did watch it again this morning at 6am so, I, so. so that's, that's that's 10 a nice round non-psychotic 10 how many times do you think emerald fennell has seen this movie do you think you're up there yeah, uh, yeah i've definitely seen the film more times than her yeah <laughs> so what is it clearly either you hate watching this film or it's really connected with you on a deep level what is it by promising a woman that has sparked this reaction in you so I first watched this film January 2020. Um, it was 4.30 I, in the afternoon. It was, yeah. <laughs> I, was <worried> <laughs> um, I was due to interview Emerald for a massive profile in Empire. We were, we were toying with how big we should go on this film. It was before Sundance, so nobody had really seen it. And I mm -hmm. went into Universal, who, who had the film um, at the time, and I watched it and I came out and I remember speaking to Nick DeSemlian, Empire's uh, deputy editor, and just saying, I can't, I can't believe what I've just watched. I honestly cannot believe what I just watched. And I knew very little going in. And it's it stuck with me. The, the, this film is radical in so many ways, and we'll get into that. Everything from stylistic choices to colour palette to music. The score, I mean, how many different genres. I think this is one of the most effective horror films I've seen in a long mm. time. But the way it treats violence against women and the consequences of violence against women and how it uses a very heightened, this heightened world in many respects, but it stuffs it with this grim, 
reality. I just found, I just loved it. I think her voice, I still can't believe this is her first film. Obviously, she show ran season two of Killing Eve, um, but she has the most remarkable voice. And it just honestly knocked me off my feet. And the ending, which I'm sure we'll definitely get into, mm-hmm. I just thought was one of the most powerful endings I'd seen in a long time. And this film st- stuck to my brain and my belly in a way that certain films do. And I've kind of obsessed about it ever since. And I've loved, I have to say, I I love the debate and um, uh, different opinions on this film. I think there's been some of the best critical writing this year on this film, mm-hmm. mainly by uh, young women. And the way that everybody has really dug into the stuff around the film, not because it's an issues-based film, but because of it's not got a message per se, but the, the stuff it tackles, the way it does it, she's very unflinching. And we should just say also, Kerry Mulligan, what a performance of control mm-hmm. and precision. My God, she is incredible. So that's just a few reasons, Chris. I'll stop now before we get 34 minutes into the podcast and I'm still just talking. But in a nutshell... um... You are listening to Terry White's commentary on Promising Young Woman as we enter into the fifth hour. Uh, Hell Spells, you've seen it three times. I have, yes, and uh, would like to see it more at some point. So I... uh, I, It's available now on Sky and now TV. Which I don't, well, I actually do have at the moment, but I don't usually have. Um, Unbelievable. But uh, but yeah, no, I I'm very much agree with with everything Terry said. I think it is a film that doesn't give you easy answers, doesn't maybe give you any answers at all, but poses a lot of questions. And um, and I think that's been one of the things that's been criticised about it that it, it you know it's it's not feminist enough. It's too white feminist. It's too narrow in its focus. It's too weird. It's too um, it pulls some punches. Maybe it was one argument that I've I've seen. And yeah, I think I think there's something in all those criticisms. But I think also what the film does really well is to start conversations. And I'm not sure that it's primarily talking to women who are already engaged with this stuff. I feel like it's talking to other people. I feel like it's trying to illustrate a problem that people don't see as a problem. I I think there's still a tendency in our world to blame women, like you see it in the first scene of the film, blame women who get themselves into that state and not a tendency to address what then happens as being a problem in itself. And I think that's what the film does really well. It turns uh, it turns its eye more on men, I think. Um, and and I think it's made a lot of male viewers very, very uncomfortable. And I think that's its great power, actually, is to get them to think about that themselves. And not just men, not just men, but I think a lot of men who would consider themselves good guys and nice guys. And who can see themselves in, you know, these nice guy actors, Bo Burnham and Adam Brody and all the rest. So, uh, so yeah, so I think that's where it really succeeds. But it is incredible performance, like incredible, um, as you say, heightened reality, but just incredible design of the film and some really terrifying, blood curdling scenes, both, you know, done to Cassie and by Cassie. But like that, that scene in the, in the Dean's office is genuinely very sort of like, holy shit, has she really gone this far? Uh, so it, it really makes you worry at times about how nasty it's going to get. And I think it, in a way, that's pretty, that's pretty expert storytelling. One of the interesting things about the movie is that it's not the heightened, blood-soaked revenge thriller that I think people 
might be expecting, certainly from maybe the early marketing or, or mm-hmm. whatever, or certainly the genre it's playing in is, you know, Abel Ferrara's Miss 45, or, you know, you could, you could very easily see this thing marketed in, in the early stages, at least as Death Wish or any of those vigilante films from the, you know, from the seventies and, and the eighties. And it's absolutely not that. Uh, there is no violence in, the movie until right at the mm. very, very end. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I think, as I think Emerald said in the interview, this is, and she's talked she about did. elsewhere. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I remember. Um, and as she's talked about elsewhere, like she doesn't think that, you know, female violence doesn't necessarily work the same way as male violence and, and revenge therefore doesn't work the same way necessarily as male revenge. And what Cassie's doing, she absolutely, I think, sees as some kind of revenge, some kind of uh, way of evening the score, but to, to, to a degree maybe and to an extent. But it's not about anger. It's not about violence. It's not about physical pain. It's about turning the camera, if you like, or turning the you know people's moral uh, judgment on themselves in a way that they find intensely uncomfortable. It's forcing people to face up to their own hip- hypocrisy, their own worst instincts, their own grotesque behavior. Um, and that's the kind of, to the extent that it's a revenge film, that's her revenge mm. on these nice guys and on these people who enable them. But you're right, it's not, a, a, it isn't actually a revenge movie. I think in some ways the marketing of this movie, it has been very successful, but I think that's been at the root of a lot of the criticism of it because people have been going, oh, well, I was expecting it to be, you know, more no no holds barred. I was expecting revenge. I was expecting a really like in your face feminist, angry statement, and that's not what the film was trying to be. But that's what kind of the marketing promised. A lot of the criticism of the film I've read just seems to want to watch a different film. Yeah, well, I mean, she said to me when I interviewed her for the magazine, I wanted to make a female revenge movie about what it would be like if a woman actually did take revenge. And to Helen's point, it would look kind of like she makes it look. And the marketing, Mm. loads of people have written to me saying um, it wasn't what I expected because of the way it was marketed. You know, you had the fingernails, you had what looked like blood. Obviously, there's the great scene at the opener where the tomato ketchup is running down her hand meant to look like blood. Part of me thinks, was it all kind of a subversion? You put all of that mm. that kind of aesthetic out into the world and, and suggest this, I suppose, very traditional heightened, femi- the real heightened femininity to it, and mm. that being this kind of bloody, uh, violent, ice queen revenge. You can see that film in your head, right? That's not what she was interested in. I think the people yeah. who felt let down... You know, I I wondered if, in fact, part of that marketing was playing into those expectations of what yeah. we think all of that symbolism means, because we see it all carried through in the film. You know, when she, she the, the nails, Cassie's nails are really, really important and come up over and over again in the film. She dresses in soft textures, in pastel colours. She has that incredible long blonde hair. Paris Hilton plays in the pharmacy in one of the greatest scenes in film this year. And I asked her about this because I said, I, I find her use of all of that fascinating mm. and and completely at odds with what you might expect in a quote unquote revenge film and she was saying to me but people think it's kind of ironic so people kept talking to me saying oh you must be using it ironically and I was like no absolutely this is like I'm being deadly serious and she sees it as a yeah. palette a front for being able to be satirical and being 
dark. And she's saying she genuinely loves Toxic. She thinks it's an absolute masterpiece. She thinks Stars it's Apart yeah. is the mm. most romantic song she's ever heard. And she's like, I like girl shit and I'm not using it, ironically, but actually having that as the backdrop against this real darkness. Yeah. And it is funny. It's, pre- it's really funny in moments and satirical. The way she subverted all of those things, those signifiers we are used to in film, Mm. That for me is like, is what makes this film really special. Nothing is accidental. And some people who maybe don't give enough um, credit to female filmmakers may think some of this stuff was accidental. She said when she sent in, when she pitched and she was trying to get focus features on board, she sent them a Spotify playlist, which had those songs on because it was so vital to the movie. She wanted them to understand. That is a, a filmmaker with complete intent. Um, 100%. Complete intent. Because watching the film again today, I was struck by how Cassie is in charge of every single situation she puts herself in until the confrontation with Alfred Molina, which is the first time that she... Which is the first time I think that someone acts in a way she doesn't expect. Mm. But it's also the first time that a man begins to have some sort of physical dominance over her. Just because he's, he's a big bear of a man. But if you watch, like, when he starts to move towards her, she starts to get frightened. It's the first time that happens. So the movie's got a very interesting relationship, I think, with or a very interesting approach to Cassie's control of the situations. And it it only slowly begins to introduce this idea of men being able to overpower her, men being able to, and that sort of male physicality, that male violence, which obviously then Mm. leads to the end. Uh, The Molina scene didn't particularly strike me that way. Um, I guess there's probably a moment of fear there maybe, but I think it's more just the being taken aback or being just um, discombobulated by him suddenly throwing himself basically on her mercy, which, you know, has, as you say, not happened before. It's not you know, someone doing the decent thing is the last thing she expects at that point, and and it really kind of does take her back. It's it's a weird revenge movie if you know if if we're going for that because this is not her setting out on her journey of revenge. This is not her making her plan and then executing it. This is her years into doing this. This is an mm-hmm. old hat at this point, and this is the story of someone who begins to see that there might be another life beyond revenge, and that's that's. Very, very different, like in terms of structure and in terms of storytelling, in terms of character, that is very, very different for any of these movies that we've pretty much ever mm-hmm. seen. You know, you think about this in contrast with something like, was it, it was called Revenge, wasn't it? Yeah. The, um, the Farragut film from a couple of years ago, like that yes, was yes. absolutely something bad has been done and now I will fix it or now I will, you know, essentially survive the situation and try and take down the people who hurt me. This yeah. is completely different. This is years of of acting out later, suddenly thinking, maybe I don't have to live this way. Maybe there's more. Maybe I can find a way past this. And then having that sweat, you know, snatched away from her. So I think the Molina thing is quite an important scene in that sense. And, you know, again, this is something that's caused a lot of debate and caused a lot of um, criticism of the film. But it's something that has been a factor, I think, in Me Too, and and sometimes for the wrong reasons and sometimes for the right reasons. I'm not saying this is a Me Too film, but like in terms of this idea of what do we do with all these people, all of these people who have been complicit in rape culture, who have been involved in rape culture, do we throw them all away? Is there some kind of redemption that's possible? Is there some kind of recovery possible? And that 
to be clear, should not be our number one priority because we're not even at the point of reckoning with what's going on, never mind taking that next step to have, you know, to, to kind of recover people who've been part of it. But at the same time, it is something that comes up. You get a lot of people going, oh, but his career will be ruined. Oh, but his life will be ruined. It's like, okay, but look at her life. Does that matter? Does, you know? Mm. So I think we have this tendency as a as a society, as a species, to worry about these men, to want to give them maybe more leeway than we should, to be readier to forgive them than maybe we should be. So this scene has become under criticism for that because it seems to be part of that. Like she's forgiving him maybe... Some people would say too readily, but I think that's part of her growth. That's not about him. You know, mercy is something we give. It's not something that is demanded of us or shouldn't be. So mm. I don't know. I, I think it's actually a really important moment for her. And I think it shows that she can maybe find a life beyond this mm. kind of crazy crusade that she has, because it shows that maybe if, if you know, somebody takes responsibility, if somebody actually mm tries to do better, that maybe she could accept that and move on with her life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think so. But what, what, what I was getting at, though, I think it's really, really clever storytelling from, uh, from Emerald Fennell as well, in that she has been utterly in control of every situation, every situation that she's been in in the movie, whether it's in encounters with the Adam Brody character or the Christopher Mintz Plass mm. character or Connie Britton or Alison Brie, completely in control. That's the first time she's not in control of the situation. That's the first time she's not in control of the situation. I think Fennell is setting us up for what will happen at the end, where she completely loses control of the situation. Although even then, she's got an element yeah, of- I, Yeah, I yeah. didn't read it that way. Yeah, no, I didn't and read I, it that I way. do also think I get, in those early scenes, obviously she's pretending to be blackout drunk and there's that snap moment when she sits mm. up. I think- you can still see in her the knowledge that if the situation turned violent, she doesn't think it's will because these are a specific type of nice guy. I'm doing air quotes, mm. you can't see that because this is a podcast, but they are nice guys. <laughs> they are not, they don't think they're bad guys. They don't think they're violent guys. They're guys who take advantage of women. And yeah. But I sense in her always a inch of fear, which is if yeah. the situation was to turn violent, that physically she is not a match for a man. And that's why I think is clear at the end and that for me is the radical realism at the heart of the film which is yeah. when there is ever physical violence between a man, man and a woman statistically the woman will not survive that encounter mm. and even though she is in control there's a couple of moments where she either takes a slight step back or you can just see a bit of apprehension because if yeah. the situation do, did turn she mm. is in their apartment or their house she is within Although she has control, she is fundamentally in their space. And I think that's there from the beginning. I think she plants that yep. seed right at the start. Do you think that she has set up this sort of, the, the, the it's not a fail safe, of course, because she's got this, I don't know what you would call it, this, the, this, um, you know, her, her plan for what happens if she goes to Al Monroe's house at the end and doesn't get back. She's planning for that possibility. She's planning yeah. for that possible eventuality that I may, something may go wrong here and I may not come back from this. So she sets up all these, so she sets up almost an insurance policy, mm. which, but she doesn't have those. She doesn't have that insurance policy when she's starting off at the beginning of the film. She no. doesn't have a relationship with Ryan. She doesn't have the video, for example. So do you think she's got insurance policies for those early encounters? She probably has find my phone on that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? um, so there's yeah. probably some basic, basic steps like that that she can take. But I think, um, Terry's, I think Terry's absolutely right. And I, I think what 
you have in those scenes, you know, a lot of, again, criticism of the film has been like, how could she get away with this for so long? You know, this does seem like men would have snapped and somebody would have attacked her and something would have gone horribly wrong for her before now. I mean, first of all, maybe it has and we haven't seen it. Uh, there may have been smaller incidents, yes. you know. And also, things do eventually go wrong for her. Like this this mm. idea that, oh, this is impossible. Well, yeah, it, it's not 100% realistic, but it's not unthinkable. It's, you know, it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility. Yeah, Emerald Fennell told, I think it was Variety, that there was an, a shot taken out of the film where Cassie had a bruise on her hand. And mm. that was meant to be a nod that a previous encounter like this hadn't, you know, she hadn't escaped it without injury. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing is about the end, I think by that point, I she figures she's not coming out of that alive. I really honestly yeah. believe that. I think what she's doing, as Helen said at the beginning, she's kind of existing. This is her life now. She doesn't have a grand plan. She has no life. Her life is these encounters with men. She lives with this terrible trauma of what's happened to her best friend. And that's her life. I don't think she's planning for any big thing at that point. And then obviously when everything goes wrong with Ryan and she's, she, I think it becomes crystal clear to her what she needs to do and I think she knows she's not making it out of that house but she sees a way to get some level of justice and that's what she sets in motion but I think that was specific to that situation I think it was and I know there's a couple of different endings looked at one where it just ended with with Cassie's body being burnt which is you know that is really hardcore really dark another one where she just walks in and basically you know she's going to bring them all down but it doesn't show her dying and I, I think what whatever ending they have gone for there would have been disagreement over it because Mm -hmm. it would you know some people as to Helen's point earlier have said it's not feminist enough or it's not hardcore enough um it's not realistic enough or actually it's too grim the fact that we actually see her die on screen in real time I loved the ending but I I don't think I've seen an ending split people quite so much as as in this film for for some time but I think I think it's right I think it's the best of any of those options and you know, there, there's a credible, you know, she has a credible plan that she could get out of there alive. You know, she's not completely suicidal, but I think it's been clear from really early in the film that she is at least kind of okay with dying. Like she, you know, she's not exactly living a healthy life. And I think that final scene, you know, she has a plan. They are all drugged downstairs. She might get out of it, but if she doesn't, she's kind of almost okay with it. And and you see that very much in in the preparations that she's made. So, what did you think when you first saw that ending? Did you did you think it was inevitable? Did you did you uh, when you watched no. the movie first for the first time? Did you think that she was going to walk away from this? That she was going to end the film triumphant? That was one of my favourite things about the movie. I had no idea where it was going at that point. None. But I mean, and I'm you know I'm a terrible person for not trying to guess movies. If I guess a movie like that's bad, that is a bad sign. But yeah, this this one I had no idea. Terry, has your opinion on the ending changed with each of those viewings? No, and I have to say, when I first watched it, I was I I kind of felt it was coming. I mean, the way that approach to the house is shot, in and of itself, yeah. is incredible. And the way they do, the door opened, the slam of that door as she goes inside, the whole thing is staged so beautifully. But I figured what was going to happen, and the reason I like it and think it's super important is the grim reality of women being murdered in that situation isn't is not you know is an everyday occurrence let's be clear two women a week die just in this country at the hands of either you know a partner or an ex-partner or somebody they've been intimate with 
the reality is we can kind of enjoy the thought of women taking physical revenge on some level, but it's just not realistic. You will almost always be overpowered by a man. And I have to say to do, I mean, that slow tracking shot around the bed, they Mm. hold it there. I think it's almost two and a half minutes. And Emerald said that she asked her father-in-law, who's a retired policeman, how long it would actually take to smother somebody. And they used the time he gave them. The complete silence in there, apart from Cassie's squeals and him, his Mm. grunting and telling her to stop moving, you know, the, the music and the score that filled this film pretty much up until that moment goes dead. And the fact that they hold on it, I mean, I found it incredibly upsetting the first time. It's Mm. really brutal. She's being brutalized in front of our eyes. They didn't use a stunt double for that. I know um, Carrie did that herself and then had to do the ADR kind of noises over the top, which I can't even imagine how tricky that will have been. And I just think that... That and when they burn her body, it's, it's really shocking. She's like, mm. you know, the lead. You've just you've just seen her be murdered, and they're now setting her body on fire. And then the actual ending, and I think that split people as well because obviously there's a lot of conversation about the effectiveness of um, the police and the criminal justice system, and whether this kind of plays into the he- hero side of that, which is something we we don't really see a lot in real life. But for me, it was all about bringing it back to the title. She is a promising young woman. She was a promising young woman a lot of her potential was arguably stunted when this awful thing happened and completely traumatized her and she spent Mm. 10 years ever since trying to live with it and live through it but she is a very bright very accomplished young woman and she was determined to make them pay for what they'd done and if she couldn't make them pay in one way she would make them pay this way and she figured that there were people like Alfred Molina's character that owed her that owed her friend and I thought the ending you know the the final shot is a fucking emoticon. It's just brilliant. The way it wrapped it all up with the visual language, it doubles down on everything. It's so sure of who it is. I don't think I could have bared an, an ending that was just ending with her death. I think I'd have yeah. found that incredibly yeah. hard to sit with. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's exactly it. You have to give them s- people some sense that her crusade, if you like, has has had this victory, has has had this one thing go right. And I think it also ties back into the point about Melina and kind of redemption. You know, it's not enough that he's sorry. This is him kind of doing the work a little bit and trying to actually make up for his sins just a tiny little bit. So that's within character and that that means that that scene ties into the ending and everything as well. So I think I think it works pretty well. Yeah. Have either of you talked with Emerald uh, Fennell about where, what Cassie's endgame was had Al Munro not come back into her life as a target? Because you get the sense that, you know, she's that that book is filled with with notches. You know, mm. I'm sure you could go you could pause the film and go back and count how many notches are on there, but it's gotta be over a hundred easily. Yeah. Easily over a hundred. There seems to be also a sort of aimlessness in a way yeah. to her anger. There's no end game. There's no goal in sight for her until Ryan comes back into her life. And then with that, the mention of Al Monroe, which gives her a bullseye to to focus on. So have either of you talked with, with Emerald about that, about about where Cassie was going? No, I don't. I don't think she was going anywhere. I think she was no. just doing this That's same thing over and over again. Yeah. She's just yeah. It was the sort of it's the um the Buddhist concept of the perpetual hell, which I know about because I watched Infernal Affairs and for no other reason. But you know, it's <laughs> it's that it, it it is that um I'm very expert in religious matters. But yeah, it is that she's just mm. stuck in this loop. She's stuck doing this thing. And you know, the sad thing is there is no shortage apparently mm. of men who are willing to 
fall into her trap. And isn't that the tragedy, really? Is I think mm. the wider point she's making about rape culture is it isn't just, oh, this thing happened at college that, you know, oh, we shouldn't mention it because it could ruin that boy's life. And, you know, what happened when girls get drunk? The way it's trivialised, and yeah. the, we see this in the use of language all the way through the film, the scene Helen was talking about earlier at the beginning where he says, oh, girls like that, you know, they just get themselves, oh, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. And you've got these this normalisation all the way through. And what she's showing is the consequences of it aren't forgotten when you leave college or leave a situation that these women live with this stuff for years and years it doesn't stop it continues on and that sense of it just being it's very bleak if you think about it that her life Mm. at 30 she turns 30 doesn't even remember her own 30th birthday and lives at home with her parents who can't work out what's happened where their happy young girl has gone and that that was her life and I think exactly Mm. as Helen says she'd have just continued on but she was Mm. stuck in that hell of their making and when you think about how many women are also in that same hell it, mm. it's a very bleak i think picture of of the consequences of rape culture on mm. a whole generation of young women and and there are really horrifying statistics showing that you know the guys who do this don't do it once there you know a, a frightening percentage of college rapes are down to a very small number of men who are repeat offenders because they are never ever stopped the chances that it was only nina are practically zero like it's so you know i think this this film is is kind of focusing on the the sort of quote unquote lower level offenders to some degree and the the sort of opportunistic guys maybe but there is a real that, that there's no real I don't know, limit between them and the quote unquote bad ones because they're both responsible for just huge amounts of trauma that echoes and reverberates down the line. Well, even the title itself is a darkly ironic twist mm. on the phrase promising young man, which was mm. made famous in a in a court case a few years ago in the States where, where Brock Turner at Stanford, uh, Brock Turner was, was, was found guilty um, of sexual assault and the judge gave him a very lenient sentence mm-hmm. and because he was quote a promising young man so and I, d- I just want to say as well that I think it's really important that we don't ever see the attack or or mm-hmm. the scene of what happened in college and, and Helen's earlier point on how it deviates from the normal structure and and the way that revenge stories are told the fact that you only see her reaction, Cassie's reaction to watching it and you hear some of the audio, but you never see it. And obviously, normally a massively important part of that traditional setup would be you'd need to see the awful thing that was done. You'd need to understand the gravity of the damage to them be on their side when it came to Mm -hmm. that. But actually, you you learn about what happened to Nina through bits and bobs and, and you put things together yourself. And by the time you hear bits of that audio, which obviously reveal that Ryan was there in the room egging them on then you you already know and you already know and you don't need the specifics. You don't need to see a, a girl being brutalised. And I think that yeah. was obviously a very deliberate decision not you know, not to show a bit of old home video or have an establishing scene like that. And again, that I feel like that was her saying, well, I'm not going to do this for your entertainment. I'm not going to show a, a yeah. young woman being brutalised for, for your jollies. Should we take some listener questions? Sure. Okay, so uh, let's take the first one. It comes from at Sophie Mapples. Sophie says, I really enjoyed it, but in this, in this current climate of the argument, not all men, to me, this film sort of seemed to say, yes, actually all men, which I found a little difficult in itself. 
Uh, I understand it's making a serious point, but do you feel it potentially tips too far in the other direction? Unless, did I maybe overlook any actually decent male humans in this film? Um, Clancy Brown? Clancy, Clancy Brown. Brown. Oh. Clancy Brown. Also, it could be. The point is, it could be all men. She isn't saying it is all men. The point is, it could be all men. All men have the capability to do this. All men are physically stronger in, in almost most cases than women. No, and I have to say, no woman says all men nobody i'm aware of who works in either sexual violence or has anything to do with these issues says all men but what a film like that shouldn't have to have is a couple of token guys in the corner who are there to show balance mm-hmm. and to be the good yeah. guys she is telling a very specific story in a very specific way and i i don't see why as a as a filmmaker she should have to show a good guy just in case men got offended thinking we're talking about all of them yeah no this this all not all men is a is a uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I use it as a joke, but it's a red herring. Nobody's saying all men. So if you don't, if you're not one of those men, fantastic. Show us, stand up, tell us. You know, let, let's look at Ryan for a minute. He was not involved in the rape. He was not a rapist. He does not pick up drunk girls in bars and take them home, as far as we know. What he did was nothing. He did nothing. He didn't step forward. He didn't back Nina up. He didn't uh, quibble with the effect, you know, the, the account. If you are a quote unquote good guy and you do nothing when these these things happen, you're not a good guy. And that's one of the things in the film. You know, so this idea that, oh, you know, there are great men out there, good, then do something about your your fellows. Don't put it all on women to pick up the pieces. Well, and can we just also point out that she is Emerald makes it clear that we're all complicit, that women can be complicit mm-hmm. as yep. well. So absolutely. So obviously Alison Bree's character is really important because she knew all along what happened and she made excuses for the guys. She helped to slut shame the women. Yep. Obviously, and then what Cassie does to her is also by turns awful, allowing her to believe that she's been taken advantage of when she's drunk. And you see Cassie have a moment of true guilt there, I think, about yeah. about putting her through a similar kind of trauma. I think what Emerald Fennell is interested in is how we're all complicit. The dean was a female mm. dean and she was complicit in making sure this this rape accusation went away and that these young boys' futures were protected. She's interested in the system, I think, and yeah. how it basically makes rape culture, A, really hard to stop, if not impossible, but B, just normalises it. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I really, I've got a lot of male friends who've seen this film and none of them have, have said to me, some of them have been uncomfortable because they know of similar situations or have heard things about mates and and it's definitely made some of them question I think things that have happened in the past but I don't think any really good guy watches this film and goes I feel demonized or that this film is attacking all men I I find that really hard to say I felt it was interesting with Ryan in that because he is such a nice guy he's portrayed as such a nice guy and I, and I know that you I think we were talking off mic earlier on about how there's almost a, well, in fact there is a deliberate approach to the casting here you know that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, Emerald Fennell is casting people who are known for playing nice guys until of course you know that douchebag specialist from the from New Girl turns up at the end um, <laughs> and you go hey, that guy's hey. a douchebag hey Schmidt come on is, Schmidt is great in the end we love Schmidt in New Girl <laughs> true 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 um, but, you know, Adam Brody, generally known yep. for playing nice guys, Chris Romance Plass, you know, s- s- harmless nerds, uh, and Bo Burnham, stand-up guy, right? Yeah. yeah. Literally yeah. and figuratively. And, and, but there's an interesting thing about Ryan in this movie in that he isn't 
I think, ultimately a nice guy that he does choose to, even when the cop comes to him at the end, he does choose to weirdly protect, and I guess he's protecting his own reputation as well at this mm. point, that idea, oh, I've worked yeah. really hard for this, I've fought really hard for this, I'm not going to let this be torn down because of a, a mistake I made years ago. So he's protecting that to an extent, but is he also protecting his friend? And I... I friend by proxy almost but mm. I felt it was interesting I wondered if there was an alternate version of this or at least in the scripting where Ryan was even at the bachelor party and I wondered if that was something that Emerald had toyed with uh, but I think it's interesting that he lies he effectively lies or at least at least obscures the truth with the cop at the end you know he's at the wedding which I think is interesting mm-hmm. and you know he's compromised morally certainly and ethically at the end of the film but I also think there's little things that you know his one of the first things he does is say something unalloyed to Cassie when he finds out she's working in a in a coffee shop and he basically insults her and it goes back to that old maxim you know when someone shows you who they are for the first time believe them and everything else after that almost feels like a, a bit of a front isn't just that she made him kind of a, a human being who's on a scale because i think mm. what we what we can be interested in as society and i found this with with me too for example is this mm. binary sense of you're either completely good and completely nice or you are yeah. a bad guy and the bad yeah. guys come yeah. with a big red badge on saying i'm bad and evil stay away from me when actually the reality is and i think she said before she's interested in the gray areas like mm. nobody in this film thinks they're the bad guy nobody in this film thinks they're you know completely evil that they've done anything wrong she's like you know people think that they're behaving normally or that they're just a human being and they get some things right and they get some things wrong she was saying to me that you know horror and and she sees obviously horror in this film she thinks horror is effective because there are two things people are scared of one of which is what happens to them but another thing is of themselves becoming the monster and that's what this film is interested in is is who is the monster and who decides that they are and actually Mm. the terror if you think you're a reasonable person you're liberal Mm. and you're you're a nice guy actually being the monster is a horrifying conceit and so i think what she does is creates flawed human beings where i think ryan is a prob- is a bit of an elitist snob made the the jibe about her working in a coffee shop when they have mm-hmm. that um, confrontation in his office when she confronts him with the video and he basically calls her a loser again you know well mm. then we'll both not be doctors because obviously she dropped out of medical yeah. school and so obviously he's got that streak in him but like Helen was saying he's not he he isn't a rapist as far as we know he isn't and, and none of them this binary sense of all good guys and all bad guys, she completely demolishes that conceit. Yeah. This is it and I think I mean so Me Too is a different thing but you know Almost Harvey Weinstein is the is the wrong poster child for that because he's just like everybody knew he was at least a bully. Like that was very, very clear for years. It was widely talked about in newspapers and magazine articles. Everybody knew he was not a nice man at the at the very best. And and so that's kind of an easier call than, you know, well, I've I've talked about this before, but like, you know, John Lasseter giving inappropriate hugs is almost more is almost more kind of upsetting in some ways because that kind of comes out of nowhere for us as an, you know certainly outsiders who weren't in Pixar we're like but but you know we're inclined to trust that guy how is that guy um behaving badly and i think there's this sort of it's, it is as terry says it's this all or nothing idea we can believe that a bad guy is a bad guy but this guy who seems outwardly mm. nice we can't believe that he could have such toxic effects and yet that's what happens 
when you kind of when this kind of stuff happens. I think as well, this idea of not wanting to be the monster and not wanting to believe that you could be is where the film's most powerful kind of feminist statements come from. And it's where the parallels with something like Black Lives Matter come from as well, because it's the whole, it's similar to the white fragility thing where white people don't want to believe that they could possibly have done or said or thought something racist and therefore will not accept that when told by people of colour that they're being racist, will not accept it because it goes too far to the to the core of how they see themselves. It's a similar thing here. These guys cannot accept that they are racist because they are the good guys. And that's what she's trying, that's what Cassie's trying to punch through. And I think that's what the film is trying to punch through, is this idea of you can be a nice guy in your own estimation and even in the estimation of your friends and still be the problem. Do you think, again, I know you've talked to Emerald uh, quite a bit on this, Terry, but do you think that she considered at any point showing some of the people that Cassie had encountered previously? Uh, so a second encounter with Adam Brody's character, a second encounter with Christopher Mintz-Plasse's character, for example, to, to show what effect that had had on them, if indeed any. I don't think so, because I don't think she's interested in the effect on them. I think the hope is that they may think twice before taking advantage of a girl again, that they may be nervous because they're not used to being the ones without control. They're not used to being the ones that are vulnerable and giving Mm. them a taste of that may give them pause for thought. But I think her point is they're kind of there's loads of these men out there. There are. It's happening in clubs and in bars and in pubs and in um, universities and in colleges all around the world where um, consent, and that's what she's interested in, how consent can be eroded or walked over, not somebody, a stranger in an alley. It's the men mm-hmm. you might meet in a club or you might know from school or, you know, you end up in these situations with and they absolutely cross the line. But I don't think she's interested in their individual stories. They are there to represent what Helen was talking about earlier, the good guy, the normal nice guy who Mm. would never consider himself to be anybody who would take advantage of a woman, probably has a very good relationship with his mom and his sister, would never see himself as that guy, but who has crossed the line quite clearly or has Mm. tried to cross the line. So I think it's not about their individual stories. They're emblematic of a problem within rape culture. She Mm. is really interested in the consequences on women and centering their stories. Yeah. And I think that's entirely the right thing to do. We shouldn't be having the conversation of, oh, how does that affect poor Adam Brody when he might, wakes up the next morning? It's what happens to the girls he might have taken advantage of before. So it's her, it's mm-hmm. Cassie's story and it's Nina's story that really are the focus of the film. The, the only thing we get about a sort of after effect on any of them is Sam Richardson's comments when he realises who Cassie is. Mm. And but so he's still going like, out and doing it. You no, know, he so is. Clearly ha- yeah. But, but my point is he's been told that she's a psycho, right? So that's yeah. what's been reported by Adam Brody, presumably to him, presumably. So at the very least, he's talked about it a little bit to friends and he may have talked about it in the wrong way, but he's mm. at least, they at, at least know enough to be scared. At Caitlin underscore Jane underscore says, I've seen the film described as both feminist and anti-feminist, and you've touched upon that, obviously. Uh, what is it about the movie that is so crucially divisive? For example, I read a piece a couple of weeks ago, it was a very, very long piece about uh, picking apart the movie and it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's feminism. And uh, I read Stephanie Sakarik, for example, the great critic who absolutely really does not like this movie at all. And she was also uh, taking pops at it. But equally, it's... On the other side, it has been very, very well, very highly praised, very critically lauded. We gave it five stars. And you look at Metacritic, it's about 84%, something like that, on Metacritic, which is 
which is huge. But yeah, there does seem to be those two camps, feminist, anti-feminist. So uh, Caitlin Jane's question is, what is it that's so crucially divisive? Where does it fall for you? And does it require watching the movie through a very specific lens? I, I do get where the criticism is coming from. Um, it is... Uh, it's a very small story in, in really, it's about one woman and her very odd reaction to uh, quite a common trauma, right? So, but, but it is a particular story. And I think there is sometimes a tendency, not all feminists, but there is sometimes a tendency in feminist criticism to want to withhold the label unless you are actually addressing all women's struggles uh, and some kind of more universal story. And I don't think this is universal in that sense. I think it I think it deals with a universal wrong and with rape culture, which is extremely widespread and uh, pervasive. But I don't think Cassie is an avatar for all women. And I don't think she was intended to be. And I, I so I get where it's coming from. And I I do see some of the criticism there. But at the same time, I just I just think they're looking for a different movie than Emerald was trying to make, which is absolutely their right, but also it's her right to do what she wants to do a little bit. So uh, yeah, I, I have a I have a bit of trouble with some of that criticism. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this was always going to divide people. It is a very big issue. If we just take the issue of rape culture and consent and violence against women, these are the dominating issues in in culture right now. And it's also, you know, as women, as individuals, we've all got direct or indirect experience with a lot of this stuff. So I would have been gobsmacked if it hadn't have divided people. I think Emerald can can only really tell the story she feels compelled to tell. And, you know, m- most great films, it's a story of, it's one person's story and each person has their entirely own experience, everybody's experience of trauma and how they live with it, how they react to it, how they respond to it. Every single bit of that is going to be different depending on who you are. And I think whichever way should have gone on the ending, for example, there would never have been kind of a unified uh, support for the decisions, for the narrative decisions she made. And I I think we don't look to films by men to be a universal story that every single person can kind of align themselves with or be seen. And we don't, we just don't have that discourse around it. And I feel like when women make films, especially around quote unquote female issues, there's an expectation that it kind of hits the mark for everybody's experience. And I think that's really, really difficult. Um, It's impossible. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's impossible. It's a real... It's a real, I 100% agree. I, I cannot nod my head hard enough because it is a real problem in feminist discourse that, you know, if you're not for everyone at all times, you're for no one. And look, that is a that is a proper attitude to take in terms of feminism. Feminism should be inclusive of all women, not just white women. It should be inclusive of trans women, gay women, everybody. That's 100% true. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that, least of all Emerald Fennell. But that doesn't mean that every story you tell, that every account that you give has to embrace everyone to the same degree, because that is just impossible. So I mm. don't think this is Emerald Fennell saying that nobody else's story matters, no one else's struggle matters, that Cassie has the greatest struggle. I don't think she's saying that for a moment. I think what she's saying is, you know, Cassie has this weird response to trauma. That's essentially the film, right? It's so mm-hmm. it, it's not it's not doing down anybody else's experience. It's not um, discounting anyone else's worst trauma. Mm-hmm. This is just the film that it is, and I think that's yeah. okay. 
And it's not like Cassie's presented as a flawless character, as, no. as a paragon of virtue in any way, shape or form. At Mossbird, uh, I, I must know, I must know the thoughts on what the different colours of the names and the tally marks mean. Uh, I think the level of sexual abuse the nice guys subjected Cassie to before they realised she wasn't inebriated. In her book, I've, I thought it was just she had different pens. Perhaps I'm not reading enough into it. I did wonder because when she goes to the awful writer's apartment, um, uh, I've definitely been in an apartment with a guy like that, by the way, telling me about the <laughs> shit book he's writing about the pain of being a man inside his day. He was, I mean, I have to say as a character, I was like, I'm oh, definitely met you in Brooklyn yep. in, in 2013. <laughs> he was brilliant. But she says, oh, you were, because um, he wakes her up if she pretends to be unconscious mm. and he wakes her up and then like, obviously, makes his move and she says to you oh i gave you points for at least waking me up and so i did wonder if if the different colors um basically were whether they assaulted her when she was asleep or pretending to be asleep or whether she was awake if there was some kind of detail in there about what exactly they'd done because i mean obviously in some of those scenes she doesn't yeah. stop them before anything happens that's that i found quite shocking as well like adam brody is obviously giving her oral sex when she sits bolt upright and the awful writer guy, he definitely has his hands inside her at one point. So it's, it's you know, that, that mm-hmm. yeah, that freaked me out a little bit. H118118 asks, do you think Cassie would have been happy if she'd never seen the video and stayed with Ryan? No, because he'd have, because, rev- you know, I'm not, I don't think he, that, that was the reveal where suddenly he's the monster because I think he is like a guy who is entitled and um, upper middle class and is elitist and I'm sh- and he's clearly got a snobbery in him about the fact she works in a coffee shop. I think he's just your classic rich boy and I think he probably has a bit of malice in him. I don't th- so and I think that would have revealed itself at some point, you know, he was at the mm. party the night that she was attacked, that Nina was attacked. What other parties were at? Was there other things? I just think guys like that never fundamentally change who they are. So even if he's not a guy who would attack a girl, there may have been future kind of casual cruelty in their relationship or something. I don't think he was the romantic hero. Armor. Yeah, I, I think as well, like he does not remember the party at all. He has no memory of it, which speaks to that being pretty normal for him. Yeah, that, that does suggest that mm. there's some real meat there and some darkness. Yeah, and when he lies to the cops, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that was his initial reaction. He does that without flinching. And that's yeah. a guy who's covered for people before has and he, so his mor- morality, his moral yeah. centre is definitely a bit squidgy. Yeah. Uh it's interesting that also they're the only scenes we have with him where she's not there. So mm. he's you know, she's the, mm. the prism through which we see him mm. through yeah. most of the movie. And it goes back to what I was saying, you know, he shows us who he is in that early exchange where he insults her. Um, and that's who he really is. He's the douchebag who covers for his mates uh, and covers for himself. Uh, in fact, we had a question earlier on from Laura Geeks Out, which was along similar lines, which was, you know, um, Cassie Marks of Men in her book and Black and Red Ink. And do you think the red ones mean that she physically hurt them or did they hurt no. her? Do you think there was any point where she did hurt people? I don't think she hurt no. them. No. But as Helen said earlier, I think that there is a very good chance that not every encounter kind of ended with them being apologetic and and desperately Mm. trying to get them out of her apartment. You would imagine if she'd 
done that ruse on enough men, and we said earlier, you know, at least 100, then there will have been incidents where things may not have gone the exact way she planned. John C.N. Harris, formerly of this parish and the pilot parish as well, Terry, uh, he simply asks, best use of a Britney Spears song ever. And and to be honest, I I can't think of too many times that Britney's been used in, in movies. I'm probably completely wrong in this. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of more as well. I mean, best use of Paris Hilton, quite frankly. For sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Well, apart from House of Wax. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, oh, or or her supernatural cameo where she played a waxwork of herself that came to life. No, she didn't. No, <laughs> she, she didn't. Did. Did. She 100% oh did. How could you tell the difference? But um, hey. Kieran Lee, 1970, asks, Bo Burnham plays his age and everyone else plays about a decade younger than they are. Do they? Well, she's 30. No. Yeah, so she 30, turns 30. So. And she's what, mid-30s? Yeah, mid-30s. Yeah. 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 Was this deliberate to make him seem even more sweet and innocent so you're more thrown by the reveal? Oh, he's definitely meant to be sweet and innocent, but I don't think that's particular. They were particularly worried about the exact age of everybody. They all come across as late 20s, early 30s because yeah. they're, you know, they're in Hollywood and they have great dermatologists. So mm-hmm. Exactly. Were you surprised that, that Ryan turned out to be a shit and a heel and a shit heel? Or was it one of those things where you go, there's got to be a purpose to this guy? This guy is either this guy either exists in the movie for two reasons. One reason is to give her a way out of this life. And he is genuinely a nice guy who has no darkness in his past. Or, and this is perhaps obviously flagged up by the fact that he is tangentially connected to Al Monroe, is he... There is there darkness in his past? Is he somehow connected to it? And is he's going to be the catalyst for for dark shit? So there's really only two narrative functions for this character. So were you surprised when he when he did turn out to be what he was? No, this bit I did see potentially coming. At least when when you learned that he was part of that crew, you suddenly and and as it as it progressed, I'm not saying I, I saw it the instant he came on screen, but when you learned he was you know in with this guy who had clearly been responsible for Nina's attack. When you learned that he was still in touch with him, even though they weren't close, you're a bit like, he's got to be mixed up in this somehow. So so as soon as a video came to light, as soon as that became clear, I'm like, well, Ryan's 100% on the video. Like, that's definitely going to happen. And as I said, I don't think it's like, oh, wow, now you're, he's revealed as the bad guy. Or it was either that or he was a complete good guy. Yeah, yeah. I think he's a guy yeah. who she went to college with and a lot of guys of that age have... Not secrets in their past, even as as Helen said, he doesn't even remember it. It's just an incident that boys like him would rather forget. And I think, did you buy that he didn't remember it? I'd remember that. I remember because I I don't. I think. I I think the the normalisation of it is such that. Those things happened all the time and what makes everybody forgot either her entire name or just her surname. Nobody yep. remembered her properly. Yeah. And that point is really powerful because this happens with such frequency and is seen as such a normal part of the college experience in this context that it's not memorable. He didn't he didn't remember it as a rape. He wouldn't have remembered it as a rape. He wouldn't mm. have remembered it as hijinks at a party. But wouldn't he have remembered all the you know the the discussion around it at the time it would have been a big deal. It would Not have been... necessarily. It, it often isn't a big deal. Okay, but it isn't a big deal because it isn't investigated publicly. It's not publicised. You know, yeah. she makes a complaint to the dean. It all gets hushed up and brushed away. It's not. This is not a public thing necessarily. His is he wasn't particularly close to Al at the time or since. He just kind mm. of knew him from being around. He wouldn't necessarily be privy to any of that. 
No, and I'm just thinking about what's that um, college rape documentary? Is it called The Hunting Ground? I think so. And yeah, and it's an incredible piece on on rapes on campus. And what becomes apparent from that documentary is the scale of it. There are frat mm-hmm. parties, multiple nights a week. There are often incidents. And actually, the, the only ones that would really stand out are the ones that are rarely prosecuted. And, yeah. and as Hella said, this didn't get any further than the dean's desk. So I don't think it would to those boys have been a big deal at all. And I think mm-hmm. the film clearly shows the contrast between women who have to live with what happened that night and the men mm-hmm. who get to continue their lives as if if nothing happened because to them nothing did happen hmm. it's interesting uh, it just put me in mind for example the connie Britton character reminded me did you guys see moxie the mm-hmm. yeah amy Poehler similar, movie similar, came out yeah. of you yeah there's a there's a dean in that who acts in a similar but, but, but this, way. I mean, this, this is not this is not the exception. It's the rule, mm. uh, and mm. we are and, and and it's the same thing we've seen in Me Too. Actually, this this has come up again and again and again. You get people worried about, but will ruin his career. It's like okay, but her career, like, are we mm. just you know? And look, I'm. I'm I'm all for the rule of law. I'm all for guilty or innocent until proven guilty. Like I, this is a this is a factor. Of course, your your career uh, should not be ended simply by an accusation. However, if we're not seriously investigating accusations, you know, then it becomes a problem because then you're just getting away with with quite sometimes quite literally murder. You know, so you have to. You have to find a way to strike a balance between the prospects of these men and the prospects of these women on whom they are preying. Mm. Uh, and that involves actually seriously investigating, seriously listening to women and taking them at, you know, their word and, you know, working on that basis. At and, least you know, initially. In- in this country, 1.9% mm-hmm. of rapes are prosecuted, not even convicted or found guilty, just prosecuted, which yeah. essentially means rape is decriminalized. Like yeah. you can't get away from that, which is, and that isn't specific to this country. We have a, nope. a shocking uh, statistics around rape prosecution and conviction, but it's it's the same in, in pretty much every country much. where yeah. women aren't taken seriously and prosecutions are rare, less than 2%. That is, Incredibly, you know, yeah. that is, that, the, the, we need a new, a new word for rare. Rarer. Yeah, it's it's yeah no, it's insane. It's insane, and it's it does essentially mean it's decriminalised for most men. And still, we keep having this conversation about, but what about his prospects? It's mm-hmm. like, well, if he's if he's bad enough that it's actually gone to court, then Jesus Christ, you know, he is already the worst of the worst. Like, th- th- um, yeah. you know, this is it's insane. At the end of the movie, whenever uh, the morning after when Al and um, look from New Girl. Um, and they're talking about, oh, I've killed this woman, and he's like, oh no, what about my my wife? She she'll be she'll be mad with me, and so, never gives a second thought to the woman he's actually just killed. No. At Ojwell O J H Well on Twitter, uh, I've seen a number of women on Twitter saying something like the ending undercut the message. Uh, so I have to know: Would any of you have liked to see Cassie succeed with her DIY operation game at the end? Oh yeah, I would absolutely have liked that. I'm not sure it would have been as effective as a film as a piece of drama, but I was absolutely rooting for her to, you know, tattoo that guy and get away with it and live happily ever after, you know, somewhere. But <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And and I the kind of human part of me uh, definitely wanted that, but I think I'd have been furious as well mm. because I think that's, you know, the, the the story that society likes is 
bad things can happen to you as a woman, but then, you know, you just have to get over it and then you get to live a new life and you get to start again and all, all of this language around overcoming trauma and, and putting that stuff behind your view. And it's all absolute bollocks. Mm. And I think the commitment from Emerald to say, you know, this is pretty much the reality. Because I think she had some discussions about the end and she felt very strongly that that reality had to be shown. And mm. I think it would have been a cop-out. I think to have her walk out yeah. of that situation would have been a massive cop-out to the many, many women that haven't. And so, I, you know, I don't think she has a responsibility necessarily to show that i think she's a filmmaker she and she she tells the story she chooses to tell but to helen's point what makes it so powerful is that she went with an ending that had such a ring of truth about it that that's that was the sucker punch for me completely I mean, absolutely. If she hadn't done that, then all those criticisms that the film pulls its punches would have been 100% justified. 100%. At Defenton 21, uh, loved the movie, but I thought the perfectly timed text messages at the end, which coincided with the arrival of the police and the three dots to give the impression they were being typed, was a bit too cute and implausible. (laughs) I mean, if that's the biggest problem with it, you're doing pretty well, I think, to be honest. uh, That feels like slight nitpicking. Yeah. It's pretty good planning, though, on her part, right? I yeah, mean, that's absolutely. Like, that's, that's, uh, that's Hannibal Lecter level level shit. That's that's wild. Well, she is a promising young woman. She really is. Maybe maybe she sent her her phone to Alfred Molina as well as yeah. all the evidence, right? And then and he's sent, actually, sent yeah, maybe. Well, she would have known that he was going to be. I don't think she would have known that the cops were going to be arresting him at the wedding. Listen, I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. Ish. Okay, let's move on. Last question comes from our old pal. Uh, he is the host of Flix Watcher and The Wire Stripped, and he's been in the pod, uh, Kobe Omanaka. Uh, and he asks, what do you make of the fact that the term rape isn't used at all in the film? Do you think the arrests happening at the end is enough to make us feel that justice was done? And he feels it was important in the story to include the Bo Burnham and Alison Brie storylines. Uh, and the fact that inaction is one of the main reasons why assaults still happen and convictions are rare. Mm. Uh, also, larger parts of the audience can identify with them. Yeah, but weren't he's a nice guy? Alison Bray, she's from Community. Oh, I love these people. What do you mean they're shits? Oh, my God. Uh, but that's focus on the first two. Uh, what do you make of the fact that the term rape isn't used at all in the film? And do you think the arrests is enough to make us feel like justice was done? No. On the second point. I don't know that you have to say the word rape and I think maybe it would have been less effective um, to sort of to call it that because it's the kind of thing that people run away from people don't want to you know admit that what they did in these in these kind of circumstances they don't want to call what they did rape right um, when I say people I mean rapists uh, don't don't want to think about this being rape they don't they don't see it that way they just see it as oh she was so drunk um, and, and and they don't really have a name for it, but it is rape. And um, I think the film fo- forces them to confront that without actually having to use the word, which I think is maybe cleverer in the end. I think she's making us work it out as well. I think it's entirely deliberate because what she shows is a spectrum of behaviour, which, as I said earlier, isn't being dragged down an alley and being raped. It's a crossing of lines of consent and the way that we kind of normalise that and the way we talk about it in a very different way than we talk about quote unquote, forcible, violent rape by a stranger. And I think it's really smart of her not to use that. And also to Helen's point, none of those men would ever use that word because they don't think that's what they're doing. And so I, I don't know how you would have had that in there without it being 
kind of clunky. And on the justice front, I mean, I think it's as close as you can get because I think there's no way of her making it out of that situation. And I really liked their commitment to that. And then, of course, that ending, which may be implausible, but I I needed something. I needed something as somebody watching that film. I needed a moment of feeling it wasn't all in vain because Mm. otherwise the futility of of Nina's death and of Cassie's death is slightly too much to bear because there is a truth that these privileged boys usually go on to get married and have kids and have families and their lives are are, well it carries on as it always would have done Mm. if those women hadn't even existed and that's that may be a a step too far in terms of reality because I'm not sure I could have bore the weight of that I I needed that that bit at the end just to kind of feel Mm. like it was for something and they saw some level of justice I think had Olivia Benson turned up at the end we would absolutely know that justice would be served I mean now we're talking but I think I think you're right. I think there's you know it seems weird to say optimistic ending, but I think you're meant to you know we're meant to believe and hope in the in the in the justice system in the criminal justice system. Um, I do, yeah, I, think I don't know about the belief, the but but yeah. in this particular case, I think we're meant to believe that she has accomplished something that the justice system would not Couldn't, have done on yeah. its own. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think that's quite the same as giving us hope in the justice system no. generally. No, no, no. I just mean in this case. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I don't. But to Helen's point, I don't. I think you know she's been. They've been let down by it once. She's had to take extraordinary steps to kind of um, get them arrested, in spite of the failings mm-hmm. of of that system. Um, what would the chances are? What What would be the chances of those? Any of those men seeing prison or being proved oh, yeah. to have murdered her? Do you know what I mean? Like, Some yeah. shitbag lawyer is going to come in and go. She went in there. She was motivated. She had a grudge. She had a vendetta, and it was self defense, Your Honor. She had a scalpel. But hopefully the shit bike's going down and take that motherfucker from New Girl with him. That's what I say. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I love like Schmidt, show. just for the, re- for the record. <laughs> Schmidt's great. Okay. Uh, Anyway, on that note, that is it for this epic, um, a lot more epic than I planned uh, because we've gone way over our time. Promising Young Woman spoiler special. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to my promising young colleagues of such lethal cunning. It's pronounced Fennell, Squadcast name, Terry White. Bye, Chris. Bye, Terry White. It is goodbye from We'll Always Have Paris, (laughs) Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, unpromising middle-aged man. Aww. No, this is where you meant to protest. And you go, oh, no, Chris, no, you've got Chris, loads no, of promise. Very yeah. promising. You've got so much to live for. Promising. Yeah, yeah. Age is, age is just a number. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next time we roll out one of these spoiler specials. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.